like it was very surreal to me to be sitting like exactly where I'm sitting talking to you right now and get an email from the White House saying it's on. Like that was super surreal. And a you know, you talk about things you could never imagine happening. Even in my wildest dreams of imagining being in a situation where I'm involved in a production that the president of the United States is involved in. I don't know that I ever imagined that, but if I did imagine it, there are ways I could have imagined it. I would have never imagined it as a thing that happened, you know, because I'm sitting there with my laptop and I get the email while I'm, you know, in my bedroom uh, that says, uh, you know, we're a go with the president coming to your uh, co-worker's garage. Podcast junkies, welcome back. This is also known as the podcaster's voice and the show where we keep on the lookout for interesting folks who are hosts of amazing shows and who want to come on and have a casual conversation about all things life related and podcasting every now and then. This is a doozy of an episode and I think there's a lot of um, talk all the time about trying to sound perfect. You can probably hear my chair squeaking, which drives me absolutely freaking crazy. Because I'm doing this at home. I've got the windows open. It is hot as hell here. And uh, so you may hear a church bell. You may hear an airplane. And quite honestly, this is not a pristine recording environment. And I think I just have to come to grips with that and be okay and stop trying to replicate um, a production level studio because uh, uh, for the short interim, it's uh, not on the radar to change anything. I could probably put some foam up here. I think that might might uh, might help things. Anyways, this was sort of a stressful morning <laughs> as I record this because I think I I mean I had what I feel is one of my most important guests on the show today. And I committed a major, major faux pas. I had him scheduled in and I did not pay attention to the fact that he had given me his contact info uh, for the Skype call. And I ended up looking for it and I was wondering why the call hadn't started. And it was a thousand percent on me. So, you know, these things happen. Um, thankfully, as far as I know, the audio is not... Uh, compromised, knock on wood. I've heard those stories before. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, I'd rather have a slight scheduling snafu be the only issue that happened that caused us to start uh, about 15 minutes late. Um, I'm talking about Brendan McDonald. If you don't know who he is, he is the producer for WTF, which just happens to be the most uh, popular podcast Um the past couple of weeks as a result of the leader of the free world having appeared on that show. Funny thing is, when I reached out to Brendan, I had no idea that this was in the works. This was probably a week or two before it was announced. And I had heard Brendan on The Wolf Den. And, you know, I'm always fascinated with talking to folks behind the scenes. That's why I talk to podcasters. But I thought in this case, you know, technically Brendan's not the, a podcaster, but I mean, he produces one of the top shows in iTunes. So it was just a, a cold outreach via Twitter that turned into a conversation where 
he responded back and a little back and forth and a couple of emails later and uh, the result was the conversation I just had. So I, needless to say, I was really stressed out in the beginning because I felt like I'd screwed up and I thought for a moment I was going to lose the interview because he had a, a conflict. And thankfully, he was able to uh, delay. So um, as much as I would have liked to have imagined us talking for an hour and a half, I'm very happy with the time that we I did get to spend with him. To be honest, I didn't do much talking. I let him do most of it because I think really that's the value in having someone like that on the show. I'm just fascinated, fascinated uh, to have had the chance to uh, talk to him. <laughs> and from a podcasting perspective, I feel sort of like Mark Marin did when after Obama left because it, it, this is a big deal for me. And um, I just wanted to not screw up. I almost did. <laughs> I almost did. But uh, towards the end, as is the case with all these interviews, I, I felt like I hit my stride and, and I calmed down and um, just gave him the forum to impart as much knowledge as was possible in the time that we had uh, allotted. So really thank you again, Brendan, for being super, super uh, accommodating with your time. And I just it was just a great conversation. And we discussed, obviously, the, the, the interview with Obama, um, a little bit of his history um, with Air America and working how it was working with Mark. Um, and a couple of other things that I just can't even remember now because uh, it's been a crazy day. I had two other interviews after that as well, which you'll hear about uh, later on. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'd love some feedback on this if, if you um, thought it was valuable. And um, if there's anything else I could have asked, uh, there's probably a good 10 or 20 unanswered questions as is usually the case when uh, you have someone like this on your show. So um, it's a particularly particularly long intro, um, but I just had some things on my mind that I wanted to share with you. So thanks for letting me do that and enjoy my conversation with Brendan McDonald, producer of WTF. So Brendan, uh, thanks again for joining on uh, joining me on Podcast Junkies. Sure. Happy to be here. Um, so, Brendan, I was, uh, I had been um, obviously a fan of uh, WTF, and I listened to your, sh- your interview when you were on The Wolf Den, and I think that was now about a, a year and a half, and that uh, when you had that, you had that, you had that conversation. Sure. And, and uh, I think what struck me about that fact was how you were talking about your history with Mark, and how you got into uh, how, when you left Air America at the same time, is when you you both had the idea, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what was going through your mind at the time that both you and Mark uh, were fired from Air America, and what were you thinking about your your next plans were going to be? Um, I think that for both of us, that plan was you know just to still work together, and I had you know been a fan of several podcasts that I listened to regularly at that time. That was two thousand nine. And, uh, you know, I'd been listening for several years. So, uh, I just always had it in my head that that's what, that was what was going to be our next step, regardless of what was happening, uh, at Air America currently. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I wanted that to succeed. I wanted us to, um, you know, continue, uh, doing things in the context that we were doing them and it would be great to have other people paying for it. 
But if they weren't, we were just going to still do it. That was my mentality. And I think Mark shared that. And also at that time, he really had nothing to lose and was just ready to do it. And it just so happened that you guys were able to start the first couple of episodes in the actual Air America studios, right? Yeah, there was, um, there was no real, um, pressure on us to leave the building. Um, you know, I, I know I've seen it couched in certain ways that like we were like breaking in, like it was like an Ocean's Eleven movie or something, but it really <laughs> wasn't that they, they let us use our offices and we were there until whatever time of night we needed to be there. And we would just go into the studios, which were there. No one was kicking us out, but I don't think they knew we were making something that was going to be, you know, a viable program, which is what we did. What's your earliest recollection of, of meeting Mark? Uh, the first time I met him was at the Air America launch. Uh, we were, um, it was a, it was a launch, uh, it wasn't a launch party so much. It was a first day of work basically for everyone who was there. And I, um, I met him along with anyone else that was working on the morning team for the first time. We were all asked to, uh, you know, come, come together in this hotel ballroom, just everybody meet each other. And Al Franken gave a speech. And, um, I believe Liz Winstead gave a speech. Uh, they, they were the kind of creative drivers of the entire thing. And, um, it was, uh, it was just a total, you know, discovery process for all of us. It was exciting for me. I was, you know, in my mid twenties at the time, uh, I did not know what show I was going to be working on when I got there that day. That was the day they kind of like assigned everyone their teams. So I met Mark along with, uh, you know, anyone else I met for the first time that day. And, uh, I had known him as a fan of stand up comedy. I was not like a fan of his, not a, not, I was not a, I did not dislike him. I just, he was not a guy that I watched or really knew much of. I just knew he was a comedian and had seen him, you know, in the periphery of things that I was, that I was interested in. Um, so I knew who he was and I met him and I thought, okay, this is a pretty intense dude. Uh, but I didn't have any negative opinion of that intensity. I just thought like, okay, cool. This is good. So that's a good, this is going to be a good, interesting experience. Um, and then we just got to work in and was maybe within a few weeks, I've, everyone felt pretty comfortable with each other. And, uh, so everyone, the way that it worked back then was that someone would get assigned, like a producer would get assigned to, well, you gotta, no, you gotta understand this was like a brand new venture. There was nothing, it was, you know, it was a startup. And so, um, they had to put together an entire, well, they weren't trying to make one show. They were trying to make a network. And then instead of syndicating shows, uh, they were trying to put a, a full slated network on the air in whatever market they could get into. And so, um, they programmed it from, you know, t- 24 hours of programming. Some of it was repeat, but original content from, uh, 6am until I believe 11 PM, which I might, might've been shortened by one hour at some point. Um, in the early goings, but I believe that was the original programming day was 6am to 11pm. And so they had all these blocks of content and then they hired all these people and they just had to fill them. You know, it was just, a, it was like, uh, you know, assembling a team. So, uh, I remember getting hired and being told, we're not sure what show you'll work on. Uh, but you know, we're still assembling teams and show up on this date. And that's when you'll find out who you're working with. 
And uh, what was your, um, did you always have aspirations to be in radio when you were growing up? Well, not so much when I was growing up. I don't know that I ever had any aspirations to be in anything other than the kind of vague notions you have as a kid as to what you're going to be doing with your life. Um, but when I was in high school, I took some journalism classes. I had uh, entertained the notion of going to Syracuse University for their communication school, which was a big deal and big deal for people that I like looked up to. And, uh, when I got to college and undergrad, uh, at Fordham university, uh, they had a great radio station and I knew people that I became friends with there who worked at the radio station. And it just kind of dovetailed with my general interest in broadcasting and journalism and, um, nothing that I was like, writing down on a piece of paper, here's my five-year plan and, or my trajectory for life after I graduate, but just something I wanted to do. And that wound up being like the best way in was a, a place like that. It was not a college radio station. It, and I think it's still this way today. It was a professionally run station that was an NPR affiliate that would allow students the opportunity to um, – really get a good hands-on education and experience uh, in, in that style of production. So um, it, was a, uh, it was a good experience. It was a good learning experience. There were a lot of great people that I worked with and that I learned from. There were a lot of great people that were going on to other things that you could see tangible results in. There are people I see out there now that I say, oh, that was a Fordham person. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so it was um, – it, it, it was a good place to start and it was a good way to get myself situated into, uh, you know, understanding what it would be like to be on the production side of broadcast media, whether that was radio or television or what we wind up doing now. And um, I'm familiar with Ford. I grew up in New York as well. I grew up in Yonkers and I went to, uh -huh. I went to school in White Plains, uh, okay. Ste Stepanek. I don't know if you've heard uh -huh, of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, do you grow up in, you live in Brooklyn now, right? Yeah, I grew up in Queens, actually. Okay, Queens. Yeah. Um, and how was growing up in Queens? <laughs> uh, it was great. It was, it was, you know, it was the uh, early 80s. So it was a different time. It was a, um, you know, it was, it was coming off of the real bad times of uh, New York City. And uh, there was something kind of new and interesting about, things that were happening like where I lived and what the neighborhood that I grew up in, but also some, you know, parts of it that were less than desirable. There was, you know, I always have memories of just being afraid of like the daily news, like seeing scary things on there all the time, you know, death and blood and stuff. And, you know, that kind of mentality, that tabloid mentality, I think was very, was, was ever present when I was a kid. And, you know, on like Channel 4 News and things like that. I just always remember these feelings of like, oh, there's, there are, my neighborhood seems very cool. Like there's nothing bad here, but there are scary things out there. So, uh, it was a little, it was a little, uh, you know, I, I can imagine like my son being raised here now is having an entirely different experience. Like this must seem like a kind of, you know, version of Disneyland for kids. Like there's never not things for them to do. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my, my uh, high school years in upstate New York. 
And there were lots of things to not do. <laughs> like you could make a list of things that you didn't do better than you could make a list of things that you did. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was, I was always happy to have that. And I always considered it an advantage that I had that experience of living and growing up in, in, in a borough of New York and then, uh, having an experience, uh, you know, fairly rural area as well. Um, it, it definitely helped me. Yeah. I went to Syracuse for a couple of years. I'm familiar with upstate New York as well. (laughs) And it was interesting to see when I went there, the really difference in people who were from the city and people who like were from the surrounding areas and just their, their views on, on, on culture or things that were culture related, I think were, were, were very different at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you decided moving back into the, uh, Air America had shut down and then you and Mark parted ways at that point, but you kept in contact. Um, no, no, we didn't part ways or really, it was more just a, I mean, I guess how you, you want to, if you want to just define parting ways as, as physical, physically, uh, you know, being separated, uh, that's true. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't so much of like, there was a, um, it was there. Let me put it this way. That was always kind of part of the plan. Like we knew, well, here's a good way for us to continue working together is something that can be done, uh, with, you know, you going back to live the life you want to live in California, me staying here with my life and we can still continue. I mean, I, I work with him more seamlessly than I've ever worked with anyone in my life, uh, including people I've like sat right next to in an office for years on end. So, um, I, I guess I understand what you're asking in terms of parting ways. It's, it's technically true. I just never saw it that way. Like I, I, even just answering the question, I immediately thought like, well, no, we didn't part ways. We've been working very closely together for six years. But yes, physically, we were 3,000 miles apart. Is it is it something that's in Mark's personality where like when he finds someone that he has a, a really good vibe with, he tends to like keep those people close to him and, and likes working with those 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 types of people from your experience? I, I mean, I can answer just from my own experience that I think we both feel that way. And uh, yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't have uh, been eager to uh, stay in, in business with me if, you know, he didn't just feel like it was a good working relationship. Um yeah, I, I sense he's a very loyal guy, uh, you know, just across the board. Uh, it would take a lot for Mark to, you know, kind of move on personally from someone. Um, and, and when I say take a lot, I mean, like, there would have to be, you know, something particularly unpleasant for that to be the case. So I, uh, I, I'm sure that factors in to the fact that, you know, he's uh, entrusted me with quite a bit. Um, it's just a matter of comfort and comfortability and, and, and loyalty. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, that's, that's really how, uh, you know, we've been able to manage it. So when you got started and, and you had to talk to Mark about the idea of, of doing a podcast, he, there was already folks that were doing it at the time. I think you mentioned Keith and the girl, um, and a couple of other folks that were, that you were serving that would serve as, as a sort of model for you guys. Well, yeah, I definitely don't think there was there were many shows per se that served as models in the sense that like w- we already knew like what we were doing and what we would what a show could sound like. Um I definitely didn't think that anything that was out there 
even the stuff that I was like a huge fan of was representative of the type of thing that, um, you know, Mark and I would do. Um, but there were the, the inspiration was really, um, you know, the, the, the fact that these things were done, right. Like I, I guess the, it was really more about finding a confidence and ease in the ability to execute because we knew that it had been happening. I mean, there were shows that I was a big fan of that had big corporate media um, uh, impetus behind them. And, and, you know, I knew we were never going to get that. Um, but I still listened to shows that, like, you know, like Bill Simmons' podcast was a real, you know, kind of changing point for me where I was like, this is being paid for by Disney and it is just the bare bones of what you would want to be listening to on a tape discussion. I mean, and I had thought that since like 2007 when I was listening to that show and wanted to, and kind of was pushing people even in broadcast media, like to that direction. Um, you know, so anything that was already being done in that realm was kind of an inspiration to us as, as, as far as, knowing that, that we could do it, knowing that we weren't going to be wasting our time or that we were uh, neophytes and unsure of what this podcast landscape was. Like, if anything, we had the confidence of being like, we're radio guys. Like, we have a leg up on this. It's, a, it's, it's the people who are thinking for the first time that they're going to open their laptop and talk into the internal mic in the laptop that are the ones who are at a disadvantage. So we we're already in a, a, a pretty good driver's seat here. Uh, so that confidence was always there in, in how we started. I think the biggest um, part of the learning curve was just figuring out the podcasting apparatus and how to, how to make it work in an automated and, and easy way. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny to watch the, the last, latest uh season of uh marin and and as well as the uh the, the end of season two because it's almost like that's it's mimicking what probably happened in real life where he's trying to convince people what ta- what a podcast is and the benefits of podcasting and uh, why it's a viable option it, it, um is what ha- is what's happening on the show sort of reflective of of the challenges you guys had when you were getting started uh no i think that the the stuff on the show is definitely like highly dramatized for you know storytelling and i mean it's a there's a big reason why you don't see like a character that represents me on the show because that would like suck tension out of a show pretty easily or or just any kind of dramatic uh uh or comedic arc right that there's a there there's something that's sticky and Oh, but I have a guy right here who helps take care of it, right? Like that's that's pretty much a dead end for um, for a narrative. And so I, I think that w- what what is reflected in what you see on this show is the idea of overall of Mark's sense of self, in that he was able to kind of overcome a uh, a feeling of being done, of not of being out of options, of being um, you know of having no more cards on the table and utilize this new medium in a way that he could, he knew he would be able to do and that he was good at 
and have it uh, turn into a kind of second life of his career. Uh, you know, I definitely think that's true, and that's part of how they've written the show and part of what their you know ongoing arc of the show is going to be. So um, I think you mentioned in the uh, Wolfden interview that the show hit its stride about seven months in, and that's when you started having some of those more memorable conversations or, or when he had the conversations with Carlos Mencia and, and Dane Cook um, and, sure. and Gallagher. Are those recorded? Uh, as, does Mark take care of all the recording and then you listen afterwards, or are those recorded live? Um, uh, well, I mean, recorded live in that... Are, are, are you saying like do... do yeah, well, I do, guess we're, I, I think the question is... Were you monitoring it at the time? Or oh, you, no, okay. no, no. The only, the only ones I've ever monitored were the first, like, you know, uh, I would say 11 or so, maybe 10 or 11. Um, the, 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 those were um, done in the Air America studio, and I was in the room with him. And, you know, you could even hear in some of those early episodes we're talking to each other. And um, the... Uh, let me think if there's any others. No, there aren't any others. Not until the president. I sat there outside of the garage and listened to the um, listened to the episode, uh, you know, as he did it live with the president. But everything else has been something he's done on his own and sent it to me. Oh, and you know, we've done some live episodes at locations that I've been there for. Um, but even those get you know get edited in in a way to make them sound clearer, sound uh, you know have have uh, you know just kind of a more pleasing um, direct tone. So uh, it's always been he. I mean, it, it, with the exception of those early episodes, he would do it by himself. Send me the files. I would edit them, compile them into show, and put it back out there. The um, what we do, learned early on, you know, you mentioned those episodes about a, a little less than a year in where we felt the, the show hit its stride. Those episodes before that, I think what we were learning from that was the show is actually unique and could hit a stride based on continuing that type of conversation. And part of that was knowing what was being created on the microphone by just having Mark and a guest in this room that was part of his house, you know, that had was surrounded in his own, you know, memorabilia and pictures and, um, you know, made for a very intimate kind of deceptive atmosphere for people who are used to doing interviews. And I think it's the nature of podcasting because I think itself uh, that allows for that level of um, comfort with your listening audience. You mentioned a time when Mark had his his burnt lentil incident, <laughs> let you like to call it, when he was, I think, on Air America. Yeah. And, and he had just a, right. I, I don't know if it was a, considered a rant at the time, but he just went on something that was just really, really personal for him. And I think the audience resonated with, with that a lot. And it seems like that sort of... Um, approach is really what the listeners grew to like as, as the show got more and more popular. Yeah. And I mean, that, that type of thing is a real, that was a real kind of case study for me. Uh, I know Mark always, you know, talked about it privately and now, you know, we mentioned it on that episode, um, that it was a moment where he realized he could, he had the skills he needed to be on mic as a, as a voice, as a personality, as a broadcaster. And, 
it was a, definitely a moment for me where I was aware of that being a strength of his and that his ability to communicate as a, uh, like as a monologist was important. And, uh, you know, beyond the idea that the show became this interview show, I just thought put that guy on a mic. If we produce it well and we put the right supporting elements around him, it's going to be gold. And that was, you know, back in 2004, 2005, I felt that. And I just wanted it to happen. I wanted to do whatever I could to make that happen um, as, a, as, a, as an ongoing uh, bit of business, as an ongoing production. So, you know, that was a great thing about jumping in when we did in 2009 and not really even knowing what the show was going to be. You know, our first instinct, I, or I should say my first instinct was to do what I just said, make this a thing that Mark Marin can get on a mic, be surrounded by supporting elements and be the highlight, be the, the thing that I know he is, be the, you know, um, very compelling, funny, interesting, intuitive, um, empathetic voice that I felt people would connect with. And so like, if you listen to a lot of those old shows, there's a lot of variety on there. We have him talking to, you know, just friends who are sitting in the studio and there's some actually like improv comedy sketches on there. You know, we are still trying to find our footing and find what the show was. And I think that's why we always kind of mark that one area in 2010 as, you know, hitting our stride. It was when we really locked in on this idea of, you know, um, a kind of intimacy in conversation that we felt wasn't happening anywhere else. And, um, and, and it was clear that it was a strength of the show. And so we dialed back the other things. Now, of course, we're always going to leave in Mark's personality because whether people realize it or not, um, you know, Mark being in the forefront of the show is why the show is what it is. Um, you know, it's funny. I always I hear sometimes people who are new to the show they say, uh, I don't like that guy, but I love the interviews. And it's like, well, then you like the guy. Like, that's why they're good interviews. It's because he puts his personality into them. And because the way I look at the show, it's like it's a currently 618-part uh, series of one guy's personal development. And, uh, you know, that's exactly where the show started. And that's where the show is going to end. When we, you know, hang up the mic and do our last episode, it's, there will be a kind of, you know, full picture of who Mark Maron was over the course of however many years that winds up being. And um, to me, the kind of documentation that we've had on the show from famous people, from, you know, kind of newsworthy moments, uh, anything like that, that's just been gravy. That's the stuff that came along with, producing the show uh, about this guy. What's fascinating is that it's only because of Mark's long history and his uh, friendship with all the, the, these folks that are really close to him, these fellow comedians that he brings onto the show, and the level of trust that they have for him, um, that they feel that they can be intimate and maybe it's the environment that they're in and maybe it's just that they've they've you know they've come up through the ranks together but i think what one of the ones that was most telling was the conversation with todd hansen um and it's a testament i think to you as an editor as well that you left most of the the, the pauses in there because that was a really really intense interview and he talks about how he, he committing he was uh 
how he wants to commit suicide. And I mean, it's it's really compelling radio when you think about it because just listening to that whole interview is like wow you don't you don't really hear this level of people uh exposing themselves to that degree yeah i mean like that that's definitely a uh uh memorable one for people just because of the intensity of the conversation um i i can't say that i have any real memory of what it was like to like produce those episodes other than to say that we worked very closely with todd in, in putting them out, you know, we wanted him to have full comfort in what he was doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely, I definitely, uh, have made a conscious effort from day one to leave things in that would otherwise be taken out on a more polished product. Um, it's a kind of like a magic trick or a double-edged sword, whatever way you want to put it, that I, I've always felt that it was very important that the show sounded good. As somebody who came from, you know, having to put live radio on the air and, and have, have uh, you know, people telling you if something didn't sound good and that it wasn't acceptable for on-air broadcasts and things of that nature, it, it was very important to me to make the show sound good, to make sure that voices were up front, to make sure that there wasn't a uh, inconsistency in volume that people had to be changing, you know, between episodes or even inter episode. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I listened to a lot of podcasts. And so I was familiar with the shows, even shows that I liked that I thought could have sounded better because, um, you know, there's still uh, some amateurism going on. And I took that mentality and combined it with the fact that we're unencumbered by format. We're unencumbered by programmers. We don't have to, <coughs> excuse me, pardon me. We don't have to play by any rules of, uh, you know, broadcasting other than our own instincts. And, you know, so if there was a moment that happened off mic, but you could still hear it, you know, I wanted that to be in there. Um, and if there was something awkward or uncomfortable, I wanted that to be in there. Or if there was, you know, a moment where Mark made himself not look so good, you know, we'd talk about that and say like, well, that should stay in the show. That's the honest thing that happened. And we should leave that. Um, you know, we just did an episode with, uh, with, the singer Laura Jane Grace. It was uh, earlier uh, this week. And I saw a lot of comments about it saying, you know, it was a good interview, but uh, Mark showed himself, you know, to not know some things about uh, the transgender community. And uh, some of his questions were awkward. And, you know, there was, uh, you know, a lack of... um, uh, preparation for it. And of course I know people don't think this way cause they're not producers of the, sh- of, of media. But you know, my first thought of that is always like, well, if we didn't think it should have been in the show, don't you think we could have taken it out? You know, there, if you're hearing something, you should be hearing something that's a choice, you know, mm-hmm. for a good program of any nature, what you're hearing or seeing is in front of you or in your ears because of a choice made of the people who created it. And, you know, we had a very specific reason to make sure any questions Mark asked of that interview that were, uh, you know, maybe not using the proper nomenclature or, um, you know, 
kind of of a of a of an interest level that transgender people are not um focused on you know that that it doesn't define them as an interest but you know people who are still not aware of uh a lot of transgender issues might still ask like we thought that was important to put that in and let people know awkward conversations around this might happen and the only way you're going to get answers is if you hear the answer to the awkward question, right? And hear how it's handled, especially someone uh, who was as mindful and as uh, patient and, and gracious as she was to answer those questions with a little bit of levity and to say, you know, no, here's the way that uh, I really consider myself or consider my situation. Um, you know, so to me, that was just a small example of why we think it's important to kind of show everything and in the same time present it in a very kind of polished professional way uh that's going to sound good that's going to be a good show and it's going to be compelling to people yeah the other example of that is when you actually hear the guests say uh, louis ck for example said uh you can take this part out if you want and then he proceeds yeah. <laughs> he proceeds right, to go into that conversation a guest saying that we're that we could take something out is a pretty much a guarantee that it's going to stay in uh, and, and, you know, that goes for, you know, people who, you know, we, I, I, I think of us as pioneers of the, uh, phrase, uh, oh, are we recording already? Cause I know we were doing that very early on and where, you know, Mark would just kind of roll tape. And the reason we were doing it was out of necessity, was out of the necessity for Mark sending me a record a file to edit for the show. And, uh, so he would just start rolling tape as he's walking into the garage. Uh, there was no situation where he's sitting at a microphone and he has a board op able to signal to him and say, okay, we're rolling now. You guys can start. Uh, and so I would get these files, you know, back in 2009 and there'd be all this fun, interesting interplay between him and people who were mostly his friends coming in, sitting down, saying funny stuff. And then by the time they were actually like into the quote interview portion of the show there you know a good 10 minutes had already gone by so i I've, i've wanted that stuff i always thought that's the stuff people are going to want to hear and now it's like a trope now i hear it on every show of like you know microphones rolling before people get into these very you know expensive studios there's absolutely no reason to just be dead rolling tape uh but uh you know i i i think of that as a good convention of the format like that's why people are going to continue listening to podcasts or experimenting with them because they say they can break rules with them. And then once that becomes a rule, go ahead and break something else. Yeah. What's fascinating for us as podcasters is just listening. I mean, that conversation of you and Mark talking about the, 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 the post game <laughs> following the right. Obama interview it was just really fascinating for us because the, the build up, listening to how they contacted you, the prep back and forth. Um, you talking Mark off down off the ledge <laughs> a couple of times because he was just freaking out about his mileage points <laughs> and yeah. losing all that was is really really just really fun stuff to listen to and it was interesting in that example you just gave that he did that too with Obama he he had the tape rolling and then you're like hey you got to get outside because the the car is going to be coming and you need to be standing outside because that's what they're expecting yeah right right well and you know I I also think that there's there's something about the way he and I work together that we know how those things are going to become part of the story, right? And they're going to become 
you know, uh, it's not just a, it's not just a gimmick. We're not just saying let's roll tape and you'll have, you know, several minutes of a show that are off mic or people are unaware of what's going on. It's, you know, it's gotten to a point where we know the show we do. So Marco always knows even before people walk into the garage, uh, he's prepping them. He's getting them ready for the type of interview they're going to do, the type of conversation they're going to have. He's already maybe done a little like kind of mini show for them, you know, standing in the living room of his house where he's getting them comfortable with the way he talks. Like a lot of the, the vast majority of people that we have on the show are people he's never met before. So, um, uh, which was probably not the case when we first started, definitely not the case when we first started because he was only asking friends to do it. But, um, you know, now it's, now these are first dates. And so a big part of it is, is on us and, and primarily him since he's the one there, he's in the location, uh, make disarming these people, making them feel comfortable, making them feel like this is a thing they can do and, and a, a safe place for them to share. How often do you, obviously with, with a big event like this, it was imperative that you be there um, because there was, I imagine there was a lot of moving parts. Um, so first off, uh, congratulations on, on what you pulled off because oh, thanks. It, it just made for amazing, compelling, like uh, listening. Obviously the numbers, uh, the lips and numbers, you know, validate that this was, you know, one of the most popular podcast episodes ever. And um I think what was validation for you is was when the White House gave you that certificate of appreciation, right? Oh, very much so, yeah. And so is that just um, – do you see that like as, as a culmination of uh, like everything you've done and, and validating that you guys were, were really onto something? Because you, you and Mark talked about it a little bit during the show. Yeah, I think that the most validating thing – and I said this to an extent that maybe I, I can expand it a little bit. The most validating thing is to know that – one of the most important, powerful, and um, calculating media operations on the planet, which is the White House Communications Department, felt that this was a valid um, outlet for a person who communicates to the world. And to stop for a second and think about that, why? Okay, why would they think that? Is it just because we like they liked our listener numbers? I don't think so. Because even as much as we're happy with where the show is at, we would never dream of downplaying how uh, thrilled we are with our listener numbers. Podcasting still a nascent medium. It's not. Uh, you're you're not going to have podcast numbers that are on par with a low-rated network television show. So. I, I don't think they came to us simply because they thought, well, here's a huge audience, right? Let's get to this huge audience. They can go to plenty of places with big audiences. I think they saw value. And I kind of know this from my conversations with them and, and hearing what they valued in the show. They saw value in this type of conversation and the intimacy of it and the um, the fact that people were able to listen to that interview who didn't like the president and say, well, he sounded different to me. He sounded like a reasonable guy. And I think that that's a, a testament to many things. And I don't want to downplay Mark's contribution to that in, in uh, you know, his ability to make that conversation comfortable. But I, I think it's a real testament to just what the, the, the medium is and what 
how this loose format, however loose it may be, we've still created something that can contain a very direct, very pointed conversation with a head of state, the head of state. And it feels spontaneous and natural and not, despite, you know, whatever a politician's drive might be to repeat talking points, it does not come across as a canned interview. And so it's validating to me that they identified that in what we were doing, in, in, which was always the biggest value to me of what we did, was we can take the thing that we love to do, which was make content on microphones. You know, that was how Mark and I met, and that was what we got good at. And we loved doing it, and we always thought we're going to keep doing this. And it, we, we kept doing it. We kept doing it to the point where when we had no financial backing for it, we did it on our own. And it got to the point where the president of the United States felt there was a valid way for him to communicate. And so uh, all the other things are awesome, and it was a super exciting experience um, as well as, you know, professionally satisfying. But when it comes to validating, it, it was really validating our faith in ourselves and our faith in the choice of uh, product that we decided to make six years ago. What was the most surreal moment for you during that day? I, must, I mean, there must have been a couple, but, you know, as you're sitting there, because that was one conversation, obviously, that you, you mentioned yeah. that you were monitoring as it was going on. The most surreal thing was actually probably like the lead up to it months in advance. Like it was very surreal to me to be sitting like exactly where I'm sitting talking to you right now and get an email from the White House saying it's on. Like that was super surreal. And a you know, you talk about things you could never imagine happening. Even in my wildest dreams of imagining being in a situation where I'm involved in a production that the president of the United States is involved in, I don't know that I ever imagined that, but if I did imagine it, there are ways I could have imagined it. I would have never imagined it as a thing that happened, you know, because I'm sitting there with my laptop and I get the email while I'm, you know, in my bedroom uh, that says, uh, you know, we're a go with the president coming to your uh, co-worker's garage. So those were the really uh, just kind of outlandish, uh, surreal moments for me uh, as it ramped up and I was in LA and I was, you know, working with the secret service for preparation and, and white House advanced team. Uh, that stuff to me was more uh, me uh, kicking into my producerial role and just doing the job that I'm kind of tasked to do. And I did at a few moments kind of have like a little chuckle to myself about how crazy it all seemed. But I know that I was kind of putting it in the back of my mind and like, you know, let me pocket that and I'll deal with the ridiculousness of it later. So, uh, yeah, that was the, that, those, those, I would say are the two points where I can, you know, distinctly remember being a little taken aback by how crazy the whole thing was. What was the, I mean, the response from your family must've been crazy, right? Yeah. Every, everyone I know was just thrilled response from, from people, not just my loved ones, but people I haven't heard from in ages and, uh, Mark said that he, he got the same thing. Um, it was, you know, just very, uh, it was just a very, uh, heart lifting show of support from people that we knew. And, uh, Mark said that it, he reminded him of uh, the way people reacted, that they must've reacted when they heard about it, uh, the same way that, uh, Ray Liotta reacts in Goodfellas when he's in the shower and he hears 
about the Lufthansa heist. Uh, it's just like these people knew what we've gone through. They know what Mark has gone through. They know that it has not been an easy lift, uh, but that it's been a satisfying one and that we've done it all on our own and that in many ways it's kind of defied any conventions that you can think of. Uh, and so I think that that was a good deal of what the reaction, as positive as it was to it, uh, was, was, was really people taking it as a, as a, a culmination of something they, they uh, had an emotional investment in. Well, um, like I said, that was, is, is, is really um, inspiring for you know, us as podcasters. Um, and I think we were really just proud of like the, the, the work that you do, um, in like, just like elevating podcasting. I, uh, Mark was recently on Duncan Trussell and Duncan was just telling him, do you realize like what you've done for podcasting in that one conversation? Because you, you had, mm. you know, the, 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 the leader of the free world there and you were the first podcaster, you know, ex- with the exception of the 20 minute conversation he had with that sports a podcaster, but this was like the first time that a podcaster has had like the pre- a full hour conversation with the president of the United States. Right. Yeah. I, I've, I've said that to a few people and I, I, I want to make sure that when I say it, I don't come off as, uh, you know, being, um, falsely humble about it. I, I, I honestly believe what was a definite, um, you know, fist pump for me when I found out that it was happening and when we actually accomplished it, uh, this notion that, you know, we scored one for everybody. Uh, and I, I, I just really want to stress that I don't mean that in a light way. Like I, I, I take personal pride in it. Sure. But I really just do feel like it is a community win. And I felt the same way about cereal. Like I, I love cereal. I was like enthralled by it as everyone else was, but I was also like fist pumping it as a, uh, you know, tremendous achievement for our community. Like it was, it was, it's done great things for us. We, we, we are in a better position because of that show. So, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that uh, us doing that interview and the way it came off and the way it was received, uh, has been received by other people the way that like I received cereal. Like I, 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 that's a great thing for me. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see the, this. Obviously, there's a jump in numbers, there's a jump in sponsorship and listenership. Um, so I'm really excited to see the types of guests that are now hearing about Mark and are going to want to speak to him. And you know, and the, those types of conversations are, are just going to make for even more compelling uh, listening. Um, yeah. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brendan, thanks so much for being extremely accommodating with your time. I'm, I'm, I was really excited for this opportunity to talk to you. Um, hopefully, at some point in the future, I'd do a part two or a follow up. Um, again, I just want to congratulate you again on, on what on what you pulled off, and uh, and I think it's going to resonate a lot uh, for years to come. Well, great, Harry. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. If uh, people want to converse with you a bit online, is there is there a uh, I'll wait for them to get in touch with you. Sure, I'm. I am uh, probably one of the least visible people on the internet that has uh, a, a broadcast platform, uh, and that's by design. But uh, but my my Twitter is uh, producer McD, and uh, anyone can reach me on that. Okay, and we'll uh, let people uh, get in contact with you that way. Then thanks. Okay, so that went by way too fast for me. It was. It was all I could do, like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> to not uh, lose my cool and um, 
probably fanboying a bit here, but it was it was an awesome feeling to know that as a result of my podcast that I've been doing for just a little over a year, I was able to talk to the producer of arguably one of the most popular podcasts out there. And that's awesome. And it's a, if any of you are still thinking about starting, uh, the best time would have been, uh, like, as they say, uh, yesterday. And the second best time is today. Just do it. Even if you don't know what grand plans you have, if you have that burning desire to speak to people about a passion, about something that really lights your fire, you should do it. You should do it because uh, you just you just never know. I mean, there's something to be said about continuing to do something that really excites you, really, really motivates you and puts you in a position where you can get to speak to uh, folks that you really, really respect in this business or any business that you're in. So I was really happy for the time we got to speak. I learned a bit more because I could tell um, I do these interviews via Skype and he was on Skype and it's something to be said when you're you're looking at the person eye to eye and I just applaud um, Brendan for uh, being considerate um, in his answers because there was times when he could just uh, easily giving me given me a yes or no response and I could tell that he went out of his way to give me um, the right response and even elaborate at times when it, when it felt like, you know, maybe I didn't ask the right question, but he kind of had a feeling for what I was going for. And it's probably a testament to him. I mean, he's a freaking awesome producer. And I think, you know, this type of stuff comes naturally for him. So um, it was awesome. It was cool. I'm really happy to be a podcaster today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, I'd love some feedback. Podcastjunkies.com. And let me know what you think. want to make sure, as always, that you are rewarded for listening this far. I didn't really want to ask Brendan <laughs> to help me come up with a hashtag for this episode. But um, I think... Maybe something simple like uh, WTF producer. That's it. WTF producer. Hashtag. If you made it this far and you enjoyed uh, my conversation with Brendan. One more thing before I forget, and I've promised to do this going forward, um, is give credit to the composer for my intro and outro music. And that is uh, Cedar in Soil. And you can find out more about him at cedarsoil.com, C-E-D-A-R-S-O-I-L. Highly recommend you check out his fantastic, fantastic uh, original music. He's got a new album out, and he's just extremely talented, extremely passionate, and a good friend of mine, and a good uh, friend and fan of the show. So don't forget to do that. Thank you. (laughs) 